Hi, and welcome to In the Spotlight, the science podcast where we interview graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in the sciences about their research and how it relates to the world around us. Scientific research can be an intimidating topic, to say the least. Lots of the things that we as graduate students do and learn about is really complex. But in this podcast, we don't want to focus on all those nitty-gritty details. Instead, we're going to hear more about why these people's research is important, what problems are trying to be solved, what current news or even policies may relate to their work, and overall, what we should understand about the science that they do. My name is Emily Schaefer, and I'm your host. It's so exciting to be able to bring this to you and bring this show for the first time ever. And I am particularly excited about today because I'll be talking with my good friend and fellow graduate student at Northwestern University, Suyog Pedgonker. Suyog is a fifth year PhD student in the chemistry department. So welcome Suyog. Thanks for having me, Emily. It's an honor to be your first guest. And as I was getting ready to record for today, I realized that as well as you and I know each other, I know nothing about your research. So this is going to be fun. Yeah, I'm great. Uh, Happy to talk about it. Sweet. So I think a, a good question to get us started off with is what got you into science in the first place? And maybe more specifically, what drew you to chemistry? I, yeah, I was really interested in a lot of different subjects when I was growing up. Um, I really liked to read. I liked uh, history. I liked, you know, reading about sports. I liked all all different types of things. Um, So, you know, going through school, there was nothing really that stuck out to me. Um, But when I started taking classes in college, I realized that I was particularly drawn to doing experiments and not just that, but doing experiments that no one has really done before. So I got involved in a research lab when I was in college doing my undergraduate degree. um, And that lab happened to be in chemistry. And the research that they were doing was using light and specifically really intense and short pulses of light to try to excite materials and try to see, you know, uh, what happens and how you can get energy out of those materials. So that was really interesting to me. I really think that, you know, our future is in using light to get energy. Uh, You know, nature does this all the time. So that was really interesting to me. And that's something that I wanted to continue doing. Um, I really didn't see what else I wanted to do um, after that. So the next logical step was uh, for me to go to grad school. And that's how I ended up here. Awesome. And what type of research do you do now? Is it similar to what you were doing in your undergrad? Yeah, it's it's pretty similar. Um, I work with different kinds of materials. So for example, in my undergraduate degree doing research there, I was looking at what we call organic molecules. And, you know, if you want an example of what organic means, um, you know, you or I are basically organic. 
you know, we're, we're primarily comprised of carbon. So anything that is comprised primarily of carbon or, or hydrogen or oxygen, that's considered organic. Um, and then you have something called inorganic materials, uh, which consist of, uh, you know, metals. So, you know, parts of our blood can be kind of considered inorganic too. So, you know, that that's kind of what I uh, look at now. I look at inorganic nanomaterials and nanomaterials are just really, really small. Yeah, I feel like the word nano comes up a lot. Sometimes it's kind of a, a buzzword in the science world. So when you say nanomaterials, how small are we talking? Yeah, we're, we're talking really, really small. We're talking about a million times smaller than a tennis ball. So, I, I you know, Jeez. thinking about that, it, it's, yeah, it's really hard to imagine even. But if you could imagine, um, you know, it's pretty much like thinking about us just, you know, a million times smaller. <laughs> Wow, that's yeah. like hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah, it really is. So with these sorts of materials that you work with, what is the goal of using these materials? What sort of problems are you trying to solve? Yeah, my research is really, really fundamental, um, you know, thinking about how light interacts with these materials. But if you wanted to think about what you could then do with it, there's you know a lot of different things you could do with it. One of the easiest examples to think about is uh, solar energy. So, you know, when we think of a solar cell, like a silicon solar cell that's on, you know, your your rooftop, what's happening is that the silicon in that solar cell is absorbing light and then creating electrons from that, basically. And then that those electrons then, you know, power your lamp or your TV or whatever. And so um, for that to happen, you need the absorption to be pretty strong. And you also need, you know, those electrons not to get trapped anywhere else. So uh, I look at, you know, different types of materials that you could potentially use for, for getting that electricity out. There's also other things that you can do. For example, you know, uh, you could also um, try to use that light absorption to drive other types of processes. So uh, you could try to, uh, you know, create reactions with different products. So for example, if you wanted to you know, if you had water, which we, we know that water is comprised of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom, so H2O, you could split that apart and create hydrogen gas or oxygen gas. So you can also use light to drive those materials to catalyze these types of processes. So uh, there's a lot of different applications that you can use just by studying how light interacts with materials. And when you say light, are we talking about sunlight or something fancier? I use pretty fancy light in the lab, but you know the the end goal of any of these processes is to try to use sunlight. So you know when I when I do experiments in the lab, I use light that's that's much stronger than that. But at the end of the day, you you really want to be able to drive these processes using sunlight. So another question that I have for you is, what does your day to day look like in the lab? What types of experiments? are you doing? Because to me, chemistry, I think of like beakers and a fume hood and you pour them together in different combinations and, you know, something explodes or something changes color. But I'm, I'm guessing your research is a little more complicated than that. Yeah, uh, my research sometimes does entail that. Um, sometimes I go a long time without stepping foot in a wet lab or, you know, touching a hood. So there, there's a lot of different types of, you know, steps that I take. Um, throughout different parts of my project. So, uh, you know, I, I do I do use beakers and different chemicals and create molecules that, that are cool colors. So, you know, one class of <laughs> uh, uh, materials that I work with are called quantum dots. 
And so you might have heard of these because uh, Samsung has been using them in their uh, TVs lately in the past couple of years. I actually recently bought a Samsung laptop because I know that their screens are like really, really bright. And my last laptop was not as bright. So uh, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I did look for that. Yeah, so so I do make some of these. You know, we like these materials because they, they absorb light really, really well. And that's important, you know, for some of the applications that I talked about. But then a lot of my research also involves uh, hitting these materials with really, really strong pulses of light and then seeing, you know, how the electrons are generated, uh, you know, if they get trapped in different areas or, uh, you know, how long they can live for, because you want them to be able to live long to try to, you know, create electricity or drive a reaction. So that's kind of the other part of my research when I don't spend a lot of time in the wet lab. That's what I'm doing. Very cool. Quantum dots, again, you're using kind of the buzzwords today. What in the world is quantum and what happens when you combine it with the word dots? <laughs> yeah, I guess I am using a lot of jargon today. So uh, a quantum dot is, um, it's again, another type of nanomaterial. So it's, it's really, really small. And the dot just refers to it being pretty much, uh, you know, the shape of a sphere. So these molecules or, or materials really are, uh, you know, a million times or, or even smaller than a tennis ball. And the word quantum really refers to, you know, that type of length scale that they're on. So they're basically small enough to uh, be kind of interfering with, with different quantum properties. So, uh, you know, I guess most people have heard of quantum in, in terms of Ant-Man. So uh, if you think <laughs> about, you know, when Ant-Man got really, really small down to that scale, you know, that that's the type of length scale that we're talking here. Very interesting. And is it these like light capturing properties like you're talking about that makes them really useful in screens like laptops and TVs? Yeah. So what makes them useful for that is that not only do they absorb light well, but they also emit light well. So what that means is that they capture the light and then they also emit that light very, very efficiently. So, um, and sometimes that can be even more efficient than the light that went into it in, uh, it in was. So for example, what that means is that if you put in, you know, let's say a, a small laser pulse, then that laser pulse could be a little bit stronger um, and tuned at a specific color. Um, when it comes out of the quantum dot. So that's why they're really used for, you know, screens and in, in laptops and TVs, because they're, they're really, really bright. And you can also, depending on what size they are, you can make them different colors. So that's what makes them really appealing for those types of applications. That's really cool. And so if I were to like walk to a Best Buy tonight, would I see these quantum dots used in things that are just being sold now? Yeah, um, I think, you know, I know for sure Samsung does it. Um, I'm not sure if any other companies do that, but uh, yeah, you could totally have a device with quantum dots uh, right now. <laughs> what do you look for on the label that tells you it's using quantum dots? Does it say quantum dots on it? Um, it literally says like Samsung QLED TVs and the Q stands for quantum dot. And I think they advertise it because, you know, it does sound cool. <laughs> it does sound very cool. If I was choosing between two laptops and one of them was like a quantum screen, I would be like, oh my goodness, that is way fancier. That's way better. I feel like that's a good selling point. Yeah, there we go. 
Cool. So maybe switching gears a little bit away from research. Obviously, research is really interesting, but I know something else that you're really passionate about is science outreach, right? Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and what got you interested in the outreach side? Yeah, I've I've always been um, someone who likes volunteering in the community. Um, you know, my, my parents are someone or my parents really instilled that uh, value in me. When I got to grad school, I looked at uh, different science outreach opportunities that were available. Um, you know, I wanted to use the scientific knowledge that I had been fortunate enough to, to gain over the past few years and, you know, communicate that with the public so that science could be more accessible for people. A lot of the opportunities that were available at Northwestern, you know, when I entered a little more than four years ago, were primarily devoted towards kids. Um, and, you know, that that's really important. I love doing science outreach with kids. Uh, it's always fun seeing their reactions to different sorts of experiments. Um, but uh, there's also there's also a gap to be filled in terms of other populations. And what I mean specifically is, is voting age populations. So, you know, kids are great and they definitely need to uh, learn that science is accessible and, and fun so that science can continue in the next generation. But there are a lot of problems right now and there's a lot of misinformation about science right now, too. So uh, in terms of the people who are voting right now, they, they need to be able to uh, have the correct information um, when it comes to scientific topics. So I, uh, I, I reached around and I um, started a program called Science with Seniors. And as you know, Emily, you're, you're really involved with that, too. For those of you who don't know, Emily's, you know, kind of taking over this project. So, uh, um, you know, I'm really grateful to her for that. But, you know, this this program was built to partner with uh, senior centers in the Chicago area and, you know, just talk to them about science topics. And it's been really fun doing that over the past almost uh, four years now. Yeah, I, I've personally really loved working with the program. So it's it's really cool to hear more about what motivated you to even start it in the first place. So I guess I, I should ask next then, why seniors specifically? Yeah, if you look at any... Um, uh, you know, statistics about what age groups or what demographics vote, you'll always find that uh, senior citizens, you know, Americans aged 65 or older are the most dedicated voting demographic. They they regularly, you know, register to vote at, uh, I think, percentages uh, over 90, 90% uh, or more in some areas. And they also uh, actually turn out to vote, I think, at least in 2016, I don't know if the numbers from this last election were available yet, but as far as 2016, um, those numbers were well over 70%. So um, that being said, this this demographics is also particularly susceptible to misinformation in regards to you know all sorts of topics, particularly science topics. Um, they may not have been exposed to science for a long time either. So um, that was kind of the motivation behind reaching out to senior citizens. Yeah, I imagine a lot of seniors get really confused when they hear about science too, just because it's been so long since they've had any formal science education. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, you know, it's it's been a long time. They might not have talked about science or even thought about science since they were in high school. And I think the other part of that is they might not have someone to talk about science to either. So this is kind of about bringing the humanity of science too. You, you get to see the people who are doing this. Science isn't just a monolith, you know, without a face that there's there's real people who do that. And you can talk to those real people. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I think that's such an important thing to highlight that the idea of who a scientist is is really important to keep in mind when people think about science. And the idea of who a scientist is is also changing over time, right? We see way better representation, well, hopefully improving with time still because we need we need more representation of, of diverse groups, but better representation uh, of different people. And so maybe when these people were educated a long time ago, the idea of a scientist was very singular. And now we get to see science as being a lot more accessible, which is exciting. Absolutely. And I think that that point has also been reflected in the volunteers who, who come out for our program and, and present. We recruit people from all different departments. And I'm proud to say, and I think you are too, that uh, our, our presenters have been very diverse from not just different science departments, but also in regards to other aspects of their backgrounds too. So um, I think that that's also encouraging to see. And, and um, I do hope that that also changes people's opinion of uh, exactly what you're saying, you know, what the identity of, of a scientist is and who can do science because science is funded by everybody and it can also be done by everybody. Awesome. So what sorts of topics do seniors get excited about? Yeah, uh, science, you know, they, they generally get excited about science in general. Uh, specifically, they get excited about more medically related topics. I think, you know, we, we do hand out surveys and ask for feedback in regards to what topics that they would want to see or hear about in the future. And a lot of those are related to aging or memory. And uh, we've really tried to, um, you know, bring speakers uh, who can who can talk about those things. Some other, you know, they, they really do get excited about any other topic too, especially if, you know, you find some hook that they can relate to. So we do ask presenters to find, you know, topics in the news or policies um, that people can talk about. So, um, you know, for example, I, I've talked about, stuff that's you know related to my research such as solar cells and you know different solar policies in chicago but i've also talked about things that i'm just personally interested in too so uh for example i've i've talked about uh the future of the meat industry i'm uh really interested in seeing how lab-grown meat and uh imitation meat and how how that industry has been evolving over the past couple of years and how it'll continue to evolve and that that talk that I've given was was really fun to give because I asked people before and after the presentation if they would be willing to um, you know eat a lab-grown burger and I'm happy to say that a couple more people I won't say I, I even got a majority of the crowd but I'll say that you know I, I did change a couple of minds so um, <laughs> yeah uh, I think that you know as long as you can find some hook they are interested in, in really any topic. That's really cool. I personally know nothing about lab-grown meat, so I kind of wish I was there for that presentation. Oh, yeah. I, I can send you those slides. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. So I know also, I don't know if this is a touchy subject, but I think you're thinking about graduating soon. Am I right? Yeah, I just had a, a talk with my advisor about that this past week. So <laughs> That's so exciting. How are you feeling about that? No, I'm excited. I think the interesting thing about a PhD is that I feel like as soon as you get good at it, it's time to leave. And this past year has also been really interesting in a lot of different ways with the COVID pandemic, you know, reducing our hours or even shutting us down for a couple months. Uh, but it's allowed me to, to think 
a lot more about my own research. Um, and I, I think that, you know, sometimes, you know, when things were open all the time, you don't have that time to think. So it, it has allowed for a lot of self-reflection um, just about uh, my own journey and my, my whole PhD these past couple of years. Uh, so, yeah, um, I'm, I'm really excited to take the next step. So speaking of next steps, what's in store for you next? Yeah, uh, I'm I'm applying for different opportunities. Uh, I'm really interested in a, a career in science policy. What I've really learned about myself doing uh, the PhD these past couple of years is that I you know really enjoy this fundamental research um, at an intellectual level, but I do have an itch to uh, have a little bit more. Of a, of a tangible impact beyond the lab. And, you know, that is part of the reason that I started the Science with Seniors program is to, to allow myself and, and allow other people who have the same age to uh, connect to the community in a more palpable way. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to jumpstarting that in the next year. That's awesome. And for those people listening who don't really understand what you mean when you say careers in science policy, can you give us some examples? Yeah, there's a there's a lot of different examples. Science policy doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you know, sitting at a desk in DC. Uh, that that is a lot of what science policy is. You know, if you think about even some whole departments, uh, there's a lot of scientists who work in the, the Department of Energy. There's a lot of scientists who work in uh, the EPA. Um, so there is that aspect of of science policy where you're using science to inform political decisions and and create policies based on that but there's a whole nother arena of just doing when people think about science policy there's also the whole aspect of science for policy as well as policy for science so uh what i was talking about before was the science for policy part there's also the policy for science so in terms of just advocating to increase funding in terms of different areas that's another aspect of science policy um, you could also think about science communication to different parties. That's a whole other arena of that. So there's a lot of different avenues to to pursue a career in science policy. Um, there's just a lot of different ways to do it. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think something that graduate students don't think that much about, right? Like we're trained to be researchers by trade, but we sometimes forget that there are a lot of other parts of the world, and in this case, policy that can benefit from, you know, this very scientific expertise. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's definitely, uh, science does not happen in a vacuum, right? There, there's a lot of different parts to it. There's a lot of different moving parts. One thing that I really appreciate about one of my advisors is that he gives uh, a state of the group every year, and he actually talks about the different areas that we get funding from in order to, to keep our research going. Um, and I and I have appreciated that because it, it allows you to see that, you know, this money isn't just coming from a tree, right? It, it's coming from somewhere and there are goals involved in where that money is coming from. So yeah, it, it really comes down to that. It's it's that we do, as researchers, we, we can feel isolated at times, but we have to remember that at the end of the day, a lot of this research is funded by taxpayer money. So, um, you know, there's a whole, you know, if you if you peel back the cover, that there's a lot going on there. Very interesting. And Suyog, I have just one final question for you, and it's an important one. If me and everybody listening were to understand one thing about your research or science outreach, the things that you've talked about today, 
what would you want to spotlight? <laughs> there's there's definitely a lot of things I want to spotlight. Um, if I wanted to point out to, let me let me narrow to narrow it down to two things. Okay. One related to research, one not related to research. So, in terms of my specific research, I would I would like to highlight the fact that um, you know, nanotechnology is something that is is a really really young field. It got jump started pretty much in the late 90s with billions of dollars of funding from from Clinton at the end of his administration and then towards the early part of Bush's administration. So we we are starting to see some of those applications such as you know the quantum dots in tvs but there's a lot more to be seen in in the the near future um so i think that there's a lot of different doors that that nanotechnology in general is going to open up so i'm excited to see where that's going to go uh so that's that's one aspect to highlight related to research uh related to some of the other stuff that i was talking about in terms of science outreach i just want to highlight that or reiterate the point that science is really for everyone. And, um, you know, a lot of our research, again, is funded by taxpayer money. So if you're listening to this and you have no idea how to, you know, read a scientific paper or something, just just reach out to the the scientists who wrote it and they'll they'll most likely be very happy to help you understand what they do. You know, we're, we're always eager to talk about our research and we're always eager to um, help people understand it too. Uh, it's it's just something that that we want to do. We're not doing it for ourselves. So those are the two points that I would like to highlight. Great. That's really well said. That's such a great point. And if people are interested in your research or some of the outreach that we've talked about today, is there a way that they can learn more or contact you? Yeah. Uh, you can find more information about the research or related research. Uh, I'm part of two research groups. So you can look up the Mark Hersom Research Group or the Emily Weiss Research Group at Northwestern, and my name should pop up in, in both of those. And then you can look at uh, the research that both of my labs do and find my contact information there as well. Great. Thank you so much, Suyog, for being on the show. It really was a pleasure to get to hear more about your work and to be able to talk about science outreach as well. Like I said, it was an honor to be here, and I'm really glad that you're doing this podcast, Emily. <laughs> Thanks. And as always, you can find this podcast on Twitter at Spotlight the Pod. And this podcast was brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT. And you can learn more about SPOT at our website, spot.northwestern.edu, or on Twitter at SpotForceNU.